Well, I'd bet that most of you have heard of the TV program called Scared Straight. This is a government program turned TV sensation that was all about trying to keep kids out of jail. You had these juvenile delinquents, teenagers who were already starting down the wrong path in life. They were getting involved in drugs and alcohol and small crimes. So how do you help such troubled teens? How do you get them to see that there's no future down the path that they're heading? Well, the solution of Scared Straight was to take them to prison and basically hand them over to the inmates for a day. They were physically protected, but mentally and emotionally, they were completely assaulted by the harshest of inmates. They would be shown the bitter realities of life in prison with the hope that they would be scared straight so that they wouldn't end up there. Now, you might disagree with these extreme methods, but the principle behind it is sound wisdom that those headed down the wrong path in life, they need to be shown their error in some way. Someone needs to tell them that where they're going to end up if they keep going the way they're going. In love, you have to warn them that, that the path they're on doesn't lead to blessing, but cursing. Imagine you're out, you're hiking on a trail. This massive mountain lion crosses the path right in front of you. Talk about being scared straight. You'd quickly turn right around, head back down the hill while watching your back the whole time. But imagine you now see a family coming up the hill with little kids. So don't you think it would be incumbent upon you to warn them? Wouldn't you even say you'd be immoral not to warn them? In love, you have to. You're bound to at least tell them, like, hey, if you keep going up this trail, there, there's danger ahead. You, you should probably turn back. You can't make them turn around. They may choose to ignore your warnings, but you've got to warn them nonetheless. And so it goes for us in life when we see others, especially our loved ones, headed down that wrong path in life. Whether you use the Scared Straight program or not, somehow we must tell them that they're on a path that leads to ruin, destruction, and suffering. Some people are deceived by their own sin and they think they're just fine going down the way they're going. But as Christians, we're compelled to warn them that the way of the wicked is hard and leads only to to death and then separation from God. At the same time, ours is not a purely negative message because we have good news to add as well. We can point them to the truth, to the true way, that there is a better way, a better life, a, a way of blessing and peace. It's the way of the Lord. And now, although at times it can be a difficult road, it leads to everlasting peace and joy and comfort. We cannot force others to see their folly, repent, and, and turn to the way of the Lord. But at the very least, we can set these two ways before them, trusting the Lord to bring conviction on their hearts that they would choose the better way. And in many ways, this is how Psalm 1 functions in the Bible. So you can turn your Bibles now to Psalm 1. Psalm chapter 1. We're going to be in Psalms for a few weeks here. We covered Psalm 8, Psalm 3, not too long ago, and I wanted to make sure we circled back and hit Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 before we eventually get to James. We're still getting there, by the way. Psalms 1 and 2, they go together. They're a pair that they were originally lumped into one psalm. But they weren't the first psalms written. Psalm 90, the first psalm, was written about 400 years before Psalms 1 and 2. Psalm 126, the last psalm, was written about 600 years after Psalms 1 and 2. 
But when Israel's Psalter was organized together, Psalms 1 and 2 were intentionally placed at the beginning because they set the tone of this entire book. They're the gatekeepers of the Psalms, that all who pass through must must go by these two pillars, and they're going to know what this book of Psalms is, is all about. You probably associate the book of Psalms with worship. You think of Psalms as Israel's hymnal, and, and that's correct. But only those who walk in the way of the Lord, as described in Psalms 1 and 2, are, can worship this God. You can read and sing the Psalms all you want, but if you're not walking in the way of the Lord, your worship is, is vain, it's false, it's futile. Rather, only those who know the Lord and serve the Lord and follow the Lord, who walk on his way, can worship him. In Psalms 1 and 2, Show us that way. They, they give us the way of the Lord. With this in mind, they also, they kind of function like the scared straight of the Bible. Psalm 1 especially highlights this stark contrast between these two ways. The way of the Lord is offered and it's revealed to be a most blessed way. Do you want peace and joy and satisfaction in this life and the life to come? Then then choose the way of the Lord. Walk on the way of the Lord. There's another way, though, the way of the world, the way of the wicked. This way is much harder, and it leads to only suffering and destruction in this life and the life to come. And the terrifying end of all those who walk on this way is really brought out in Psalms 1 and 2. And together they serve to warn all who pass by them to scare them straight, if you will, There is a judgment coming. And the God of heaven, he will bring all of your thoughts and your deeds into accounting one day. And in that day, you will not stand unless you've found peace through Christ, his son. There is hope. There's eternal hope here, but only for those who heed this warning and turn to the way of the living God. And this morning, we're going to see what Psalm 1 has to say about all this, about these two ways. So why don't we start by reading Psalm 1. You can follow along as I read now Psalm 1. It's short. It says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. As you can tell, Psalm 1 is a tale of Two ways. It sets up this complete contrast between two people walking on two paths with two directions and two destinations. You have the way of the Lord versus the way of the world, the way of the righteous versus the way of the wicked. One way is is known as blessed, the other is cursed. One is influenced by God's word, the other is influenced by the world. One delights in the law, the other delights in lawlessness. One is likened to a tree, the other to chaff, 
One is firmly planted. The other one is blown away. One is near streams of water. The other is a wasteland. One is fruitful. The other is barren. One has leaves that never wither. The other is dried up. One is useful. The other is useless. One prospers. The other decays. And all those on the way of blessing are described as the assembly of the righteous. And the rest are just a gathering of the guilty. And this contrast concludes with the two destinies of these two groups in verse 6. That the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We have a mere six short verses here. But they provide an unparalleled study and and contrast between the saved and the lost. There's only two types of people in the world, and there's only two ways. The right one and the wrong one. And this is their tale. It's a tale of two ways. What's interesting about Psalm 1, though, is there are no commands anywhere in the whole psalm. We're not actually told to do anything explicitly. We're not commanded to walk on the way of the Lord. But the pictured contrast is so powerful and so clear that it's rather obvious. It's it's a no-brainer what we are being told here, that the way of the wicked, it's the wrong way. There's no blessing on the way of the wicked. Psalm 2, we'll see next week, it's much more in your face. It's like that prisoner who's yelling at you in your face, telling you to to change your ways lest you end up like him. But Psalm 1 is like the the quiet, older prisoner who simply shows you his life and his suffering, all of his pain, his hardship, his regret. And just just seeing his life and, and the suffering in that picture, it's enough to make you run the other way and not want to go any further, to choose a different path. Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. And God's wisdom is, in Scripture, it's always pictured as being there for the taking. Here it is. Here's wisdom. But only the wise will will choose wisdom and follow wisdom and live. Will you follow the way of the Lord? This blessing can be yours. Will you heed God's wisdom. Well, let's go through Psalm 1 now in a bit more detail. And I want you to behold this tale of two ways and see this contrast that you might seek the way of the Lord. And we begin with, number one, the way of the blessed. The way of the blessed or or the blessed. And what we find here is a character portrait. Again, we're not told to do anything, but we're given a picture of the blessed man that we may be like him. It starts off and it says, how blessed is the man. Now, of course, the convention back then is to write always in the masculine, but this refers obviously to women as well. You know, how blessed is the man, the woman, the child, the teenager, the young adult, the senior citizen, just how blessed is the person. What does it mean, though, to be blessed? This word for blessed is often translated just as happy. This is the blissful person, the joyful person. It talks of deep satisfaction in life. We're talking fulfillment and contentment and just having your cup of life filled to the brim. Of course, this blessedness ultimately comes from the Lord. This satisfaction is in the Lord where you find your your delight and your joy in God. This state of blessedness ultimately derives from knowing that you've been forgiven of your sin and reconciled to God in heaven. Like Psalm 32 1 says, How blessed is he whose transgression is 
forgiven, whose sin is covered. That's the place of blessing. Unless you're restored to God and forgiven in Christ, you'll never know this blessing here. But once you repent and you follow Christ as your Lord and Savior, you find life's ultimate meaning and purpose, which is to know God and and serve God and enjoy God. And you also find this blessing that's pictured here in that life. Life apart from God is cursed. Life in the world, the world is still cursed, and those who live there are still under that curse. And life, it's, it's futile. It's full of vanity and struggle. And it only ends in death and then more death. But life with God is blessed. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And how blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. In Psalm 128, verse 1. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways, who walks in his ways. The blessed man fears God with a holy reverence, but that means he has no other fears. God is his refuge and strength, so he fears no evil. In such a life of just humble submission to God's perfect will, it leads to greater peace, God's perfect peace. And so the blessed man is, is one who can ultimately say, it is well with my soul, no matter what happens. Understand, the blessed man is not always the rich man. The blessed man is not always the healthy man. Trials and tribulations strike even God's people, this we know. But the one who walks with God, they will still be blessed, for God is with him. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. So even in trials, you are still richly and eternally blessed. If you have Christ, you've been blessed with every blessing in the spiritual places. You you have all blessing in Christ. This is God's blessing. How blessed is the man? It sounds good. But the question is now, does it sound like you? Are you blessed? Do you have this deep-seated contentment and joy in the Lord where you're satisfied in Christ above all else. No matter what happens, you can really say, well, it's well with my soul. I have Christ. As a Christian, you, you should be able to say this and mean it. If you're not experiencing this blessing in life, though, maybe it's time to ask, are you really walking in God's ways? This blessedness follows those who walk in the way of the Lord. And don't misunderstand, it's not earned, it's all by God's grace. But this blessedness comes to all those who walk on the way of the Lord by his grace. But is that you? Well, let's keep going here. We're going to view the, the portrait that the author paints of the blessed man. The first three verses give us the, the picture of the blessed And hopefully, as you look at this portrait, you're going to see your reflection here. Let me give you three characteristics of the blessed person. Three characteristics of the blessed person. Number one, he's separated from the world. Verse one, he's separated from the world. Look again at verse one. It says, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the way, or rather in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit 
in the seat of scoffers. The blessed man is first known by what he does not do. He does not walk in the way of the wicked. The writer here uses some Hebrew parallelism to basically just saying the same thing three times. He doesn't walk with the wicked. He doesn't stand with the sinner. He doesn't sit with the scoffer. The blessed man does not live with the ungodly. This verse really has to do with influence. He doesn't put himself under their influence. The way of the world is marked by sin and rebellion and disobedience to God and his ways. And the blessed man, he he doesn't flirt with that. He runs away from that. The blessed man does not see how, how close to the fire he can get without getting burnt. He doesn't bring his toes right up to the edge of the cliff to to peek over, hoping he won't fall down. He's walking in in just the other direction. He doesn't even want to get close to the ways of the world. That's because the ways of the wicked, they're more like a slippery slope. And once you, you start heading down it, your foot will slip and you will find yourself down this this downward spiral of sin and suffering. Sin begets more sin. And it can happen quickly. Notice the progression in verse 1, which I believe is intentional. It goes from, from walking to standing to sitting. This describes the, the levels of closeness or intimacy with those in the world. At first, a person might walk in their way. He's considering sin. Then he might stand in their path. He's, he's contemplating sin. Finally, he's sitting in their seat. He's comfortable in sin. But not with the blessed man. He is separate from the world. And all who desire his blessing must likewise be separate from the world. Now this is not a call to flee the world, to hide away in some monastery or or something like that. As the saying goes, we are to be in the world, not of the world. Or as Steve Lawson has put it, you're to have your boat in the water, just no water in the boat. And so what kind of separation are we talking about? As verse 1 says, it's that of influence or counsel. Those in the world, they should never be telling you what to do or or even influencing you. The world lives in complete rebellion against God and his ways. So why would you ever listen to them? Their worldview is completely man-centered. Do all things to the glory of self. Christ says, deny yourself, follow me. But the the mantra of the world is, no, never deny yourself and follow your heart. So how could you ever put yourself under the influence of the world and think that you're not going to end up further away from Christ? No, but this is a call not to partner with them, not to heed their counsel, not to walk in their ways. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship have light and darkness? These two ways, they don't intersect. They're going in opposite directions. You will never cross paths. That's the point. You should not be dabbling in both ways. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. It says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is of the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Do you love the world and the things of the world? Has the world captured your your ears, your eyes, your heart? And if so, it's just a matter of time before your feet follow them, before you're walking in their way. The great Puritan John Bunyan wrote this classic allegory. It's not the one you're thinking of. This one's called The Holy War. It's not Pilgrim's Progress. This is The Holy War. It tells of a city called Mansoul, a person. The city bears the image of Shaddai, that's God. The city is being assaulted by Diabolos, that's the devil. Thankfully, the city has walls, but it has weak points at the five gates. The ear gate, the eye gate, the nose gate, the mouth gate, and the feel gate. And every day, the enemy of sin comes to attack through one of the five gates. But the thing is, sin is actually not powerful enough on its own to break down the gate. Rather, the only way sin can get inside is if someone from within opens the gate and allows sin to enter. And so every day, sin whispers temptation to the ear gate or shows a desirous picture to the eye gate. And more often than not, someone opens the gates and sin enters in. And Bunyan's allegory is useful. Maybe you're a Christian and you wonder, why are you so worldly? Why is your your spiritual growth so stunted? Why, Why don't you have that fire for the Lord like you used to? Why aren't you enthralled by the things of the Lord? Why are you not blessed? Meanwhile, you've permanently lodged open your eye gate to... The, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, all this worldly sin. You're, you're watching things you know you should not be watching. And your ear gate is just being inundated with the world's thinking, their influence, the world's music, which it's not all is inherently evil, but I think we know a lot of it is just glorifying sin. The world's sin and influence, they're running free in your mind. And then you wonder, I wonder why I'm so worldly these days. I wonder why I'm not just thriving or on fire for the Lord. This is why you're you're not blessed. Instead, you need to seal the gates and bar them shut to the temptations and allurements and influence of the world and turn away. The battle is to not let the messengers of the world in your mind and in your heart or else you're going to become like them. Instead, open your gates to those who come in the name of the Lord. This leads to a a second characteristic of the blessed man. Number two, he's saturated with the word. He is saturated with the word. Verse two says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Instead of being influenced by the world, the, the blessed man is influenced and guided by the word, meaning God's word. The word for law here is Torah, which strictly speaking refers to the first five books of the Bible. But the word actually just means instruction. And we know God's instructions are found in in all the Bible. So this is just a man or woman of the book. They're devoted to God's instructions, which guide them to blessing. God commanded all of his people to be like this. Back in Deuteronomy 6, 
He told all of his people to, to write his word on their heart, to treasure it, to, to be devoted to it, because God knew that as they walk in the counsel of his word, they're going to be on the blessed path. His word is like our spiritual food, which is why the blessed man delights to meditate in it. It's his pleasure to spend time in the word because he knows he's going to find there all of the truth and all the wisdom he needs to navigate life. That this is his instruction manual for life. And he knows he needs this. And such delight in God's word, it's a chief evidence of the new birth. The natural man is, is repelled by God's word. It's like oil and water. He doesn't understand it. He doesn't desire it. You know, some people like this, they, they find their way into church every now and then. They're not truly saved. They're what we might call a cultural Christian. They just kind of run in Christian circles from time to time. But whenever they read their Bibles, which to them is just a religious chore, they don't really want to. It doesn't make sense. It's confusing. It's boring. Whenever they listen to a sermon, which for them is just a religious duty, they're not engaged. They're not enthralled. They're, they're the clock watchers. They're always checking their watch. It's like, when's this going to be over? We can get back to the things we really want to do. Something a little more fun. There's no excitement with God's truth. But the thing is, when you come to true saving faith in Christ as your Lord, God makes you new. When you submit yourself, you humble yourself in your pride from your ways, you turn to Christ, acknowledging you need a Savior, and you call out to him, God makes you new. He gives you a new heart, a new mind, new eyes to see, new ears to hear, and his word comes alive. It falls like rain on dry and parched ground, and it now becomes your joy to just drink it all in. You're pleased, you're excited to hear his word. It springs divine truth, wisdom, and life eternal. So does this sound like you? Is it your joy to sit at the feet of the Lord, to, to learn from him as you're in his word? Do you long for the pure milk of the word, 1 Peter 2, 2, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation? Are you following him on his way by his word? You can, you should freely open up your eye gate and your ear gate to God's word. His truth and his wisdom, they're friends to your soul. And so let them influence you and guide you and counsel you. Now, I've made this point before, but it bears repeating that this is, this is really where the battle is today, this war of influence in your mind. Just, just sum up all of the worldly influence you allow into your mind in any given day. All, all the weekly media you consume, which may not be outright evil, but at the same time, I think we all know it's, it has no agenda to glorify God. Just think of all the, the worldly media that, that gets in. Now add up all of the godly influence you let in. All the time spent in, in word, in prayer, in devotion, in meditation, which he says here, and that just means to really to ponder, to think about God's truth, to let it impact your life. And so now just ask, who is winning the war of influence in your mind? In whose counsel are you really walking? It doesn't say meditate on the word five minutes a week. But the blessed man feeds on the truth 
day and night. And so do you want God's blessing on your life? You only limit yourself when you limit your your time in his word. This is the way. God has given you all the instruction you need. You just need to, to heed it and to walk in this way. And it will lead to number three now, the third characteristic. He's situated by the water. The characteristic of a blessed man, he's separated from the world, saturated in the word, and he's situ- situated in, uh, by the water. Verse three, it says, He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Verse 3 captures the result of walking on the way of the Lord. It pictures the blessing of the blessed man as a tree, this, this mighty tree, firmly planted with deep roots. It's unshakable. Even if this tree were hit by a car, it wouldn't even budge. And that's because it's, it's situated by the waters. It's planted by streams of waters. It's nourished, fully supplied. I think we all know from last year what, what drought can do to trees, even mighty trees. Even, even mighty trees, they're no match for prolonged drought. We should know our neighbor's oak fell in our house last year because of the drought. But instead, a thriving tree doesn't fall. It yields its leaf and it doesn't wither. This is the picture then of blessing, of prosperity. It's a life of fruitfulness before the Lord. And again, even, even when storms come, this tree doesn't fall. The person constantly nourished on the words of faith and walking in God's ways need not fear whatever they go through because God is with them. The Lord is a shield and a refuge to those who walk in his ways. And this is part of that blessing. This is the type of prosperity that money can't buy. That the wellness of your soul, the thriving of your life with God, satisfaction in him. And so again, I'll ask, does this describe you? Are you blessed? Understand, if you forsake God's ways, you go to the way of the world, you let the world be your guide, you will find no lasting peace in this life. In the end, there's only hardship and ruin, and suffering. For a season, you might live it up, but the storm will come and and your tree will fall over. There's no blessedness found by walking away from the Lord, only vanity and futility and cursing. And so what kind of life do you want? Have you learned yet that the way of the wicked is hard? Has life shown you that no one can hold a fire to the bosom and not get burned? Has your own sin betrayed you enough yet that you realize its desire is to master you? Have your worldly friends finally proved to you they don't actually care about you, they're just looking out for themselves? Heed wisdom. Stop chasing after the lust of the flesh. Turn from the wicked way. Seek the Lord through Christ. You will find a deeper joy in life than you've ever known. But if you don't listen, you're going to find the way of the cursed. Let's turn now to this second way, this contrast now, the way of the blessed. Now, in verses 4 through 6, there's a second picture given, and it's the way of the cursed. I said there's just two ways, two people, two paths, two destinations. 
And this contrast continues now by, by giving a portrait of those who are walking on the way of the wicked. And see what their path looks like. And see where they end up before it's too late. And by way of contrast now, let's see these three characteristics of the cursed man. Not the blessed man, now the, the cursed man. Number one, he is unfruitful. From verse 4, he's unfruitful. Verse 4 says, the wicked are not so, but they're like chaff which the wind drives away. A much shorter illustration is used to describe those on the way of the wicked, but it gets the job done. They're, they're not so, meaning they're not blessed. They don't prosper like the mighty tree planted by the streams of water. Instead, they're like chaff. Do you know what chaff is? The ancient farmer, when he was harvesting some grain, he would take his crop to his threshing floor, which usually is on a hill, a windy spot. And after doing some threshing, he would take a winnowing fork, shove it in, and throw the the wheat up into the air. And all of the heavy particles, like the edible grain, would fall back down into the pile. But all all of the husks, like uh, of the wheat, that's chaff. That they're they're like nothing, like like paper. They would just float away. They'd be carried away by the wind. It's a way of separating the wheat from the chaff. And it's not a big deal, though, because the chaff is worthless. It has no value. It's not part of the harvest. It's only fit to be burned and discarded. And such is the end for those on the wicked way. They do not bear fruit for God. They live in constant rebellion to his ways. They're not watered by the word. They're watered down by the word. Uh, the world, rather. And so they'll be driven away. They're lost. And the image of chaff captures both their uselessness and the ease with which God will remove them. Malachi 4.1 speaks of that day. It says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Speaking of the coming judgment, secondly here, he's unprepared. The second characteristic of the the cursed man, he's unprepared. He's unfruitful and he's unprepared. Verse 5. It says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. The man or woman walking on the way of the world They will not be prepared for the day of the Lord. It's the day of God's judgment. Right now, the blessed and the cursed, they live together. They go to school together. They work together. They're in the same family. Sometimes even come to church together. But when Christ returns, he will separate all of the true from the false. He will gather his sheep, those who know his voice, who follow him, who have true faith. And he will gather them to his right side, his place of blessing. But those who he doesn't know, who don't follow him, they're to the left. The goats to the left, to the place of cursing. Matthew 25 speaks of this division. Verse 24 or 34 speaks of that day of judgment. It says, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But verse 41 says, Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, 
into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And that's Christ speaking, by the way, and he will be that judge. This day of judgment begins when Christ returns and the wicked will not stand on that day. They will fall like the unwatered tree. And having rejected Christ, the only means of forgiveness and reconciliation with God, and having clung to their sins, they will be handed over to judgment. And in that day, all those outside of Christ, they will be excluded from this gathering called the assembly of the righteous. The assembly of the righteous. Now, speaking of that, by the way, can I just say this? Some people today, they claim to be Christians, but they hate the church. They hate the church. They hate going to church. They don't like God's people. They don't like being around God's people. They don't want to hang out with other Christians. Boring. They're dull. There's no fun. Instead, they'd rather be with their worldly friends and just kind of run with them, do what they do. They're way more fun with their worldly friends. And chances are that's because they're still one of them. Show me someone's friends. Show me the people that they really run with. And I'll show you what way a person is on more times than not. I'll show you the way they're really walking. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Beware who you choose to walk with in this life because you just might find that they're going to take you where they're going. But this works in the other direction, though, that as you link arms with other believers, they, they strengthen you, they encourage you, they, they help take you where they're going, which is toward Christ and his ways. And so walk in God's ways and do so with his people. That's what the church is, after all. The word church, you know what it means? Ecclesia, the called out ones. Those whom God has called out to be separate from the midst of the world, to, to run together, to walk on this way together, helping one another on the way of the Lord. Right now in the visible church, the sheep and the goats are mixed together. The wheat and the tares are next, next to each other. But a day of separation is coming when the true assembly of those who have been made righteous by their faith in Christ, they will be separated and they will inherit the blessing forever. The question is, will you be prepared or unprepared for that day? Finally now, verse three or verse 6, rather, he is unknown. A third characteristic of the cursed man, he's unknown. Unfruitful, unprepared, and then unknown. Verse 6, it says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 1 begins with blessed, ends with perish. The Lord knows those who are walking on his way, and he will save them. But those walking the other way, he does not know. They will be lost. Christ himself, he echoed all of this teaching here in Psalm 1 when he gave the, the Sermon on the Mount. You remember that? He really began the same way. You have the Beatitudes, where he's pretty much saying how blessed is the man. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those with a pure heart. He, he starts by laying out what the path of God's blessing really looks like. But by the end of his sermon, he turns to a word of warning because there is a judgment coming. 
and the wicked will perish. They'll be kept out. A passage we're very familiar with, Matthew 7, 21 through 23 again. Matthew 7, 21. Christ says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father will enter. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. These are people who were always on the way of the world. They never truly followed Christ. They never were on his way, and he never knew him. Or or he never knew them. They never knew him. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, and he knows all those who are truly on the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You know, think back to, to Scared Straight. Those programs didn't always work. There were many teens, they would go to the jail, but they would not be deterred at all. They'd go back to the life, nothing would change. And I think that's because not all people who do wrong in this life suffer for it. Many times, the wicked prosper. Many people, they they dabble in, in drugs, alcohol, cheating, stealing, greed, immorality, crime. And they seem to get away with it. In fact, that they prosper. Such a lifestyle, it's even glorified by our culture, right? All of the, the, the movies and music that, that succeed, that's what this is about, glorifying this culture. And so people see others, they're going down this way, they're, they're feasting on the lusts of the flesh without any consequences, and they think they will be safe too. Their role model, after all, not these inmates, but CEOs and Instagram stars and the rich and the famous. And these people seem to be having pretty successful, fun lives, even though they're extremely wicked and they're walking on the way of the world. But you must know that in the end, like Psalm 73 says, in the end, God will cause their foot to slip. Death will come upon them suddenly and after that a great terror. For when God arises, those found on the way of the wicked, they're going to perish. He will not tolerate their wicked deeds forever. All will be brought to account. Again, we can't make anyone believe this. We can't make anyone believe this. But we can set before them these two ways and call them to choose life that they may live. The way of the world is not blessed. It's cursed. The lust of the world, they're fool's gold. They don't satisfy. They lead only to to more suffering. But the way of the Lord is peace. And those who are on it, they find real comfort and joy and satisfaction like like they've never known in this life and then eternally. So which way will you choose? Choose life. Christ himself exhorted us, choose life. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 13, he says, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. There's just a few who find it. But enter through the narrow gate. This tale of two ways hasn't changed. Nothing has changed since Psalm 1, before and after. There's still just two ways 
Two people, two destinations. But heed Christ's own plea to enter through the narrow way. It's not enough to approach the gate. It's not enough to to look at it, to come right up to it, to, to stare at it. It's not enough to go to church, to read your Bible. It's not enough to be around Christians. You have to enter through the gate. And Christ is that gate. You have to believe on him. Repent of your sins and your waywardness. Humble yourself before God knowing you have sinned. You deserve a judgment with the wicked because that's you. But as you turn to Christ who died on your behalf and rose for your life, repent of your sins and waywardness and turn to Christ, God will forgive. He will cleanse you and even make you new. He will change you. He'll give you a new mind and a new heart and a new direction. He will set you on his way and change your life like you've never known. You will be transformed. And then, and only then, as you walk on his way, will you find this blessing. Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. But today, do it today. Today is still the day of salvation, but choose today. Because the day of of reckoning, the day of separation is coming. Someone has no commands, but I think Christ sums it up when he says, enter through the narrow gate. Things only fitting to end now with, with the final verse of Psalm 2, which both perfectly concludes yet also sets up next week. Psalm 2.12 says, Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. But how blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Our Lord God, you are the blessed one. You are our maker, our sustainer, and our savior, our redeemer. And we thank you for sending Christ the savior, Lord, because we know that all mankind was walking headlong in the way of the world. And all of us here were once on that way, perishing and enjoying it, hating you, hating your ways. Lord, we thank you, though, that you got a hold of us through the gospel, through Christ, through the good news. You humbled us and turned us around. I pray for any this morning, as we often do, Lord, that that have not humbled themselves or been humbled, have not turned to Christ, that, that today would be that day, that they would repent and believe, that they would see the folly of their ways, look at the life they've been living and, and see how it sin has betrayed them. Their, their lusts have, have gotten them nowhere. They have no satisfaction and, and it will only get worse. But you offer a new life, new hope, new love, new joy, new peace, everlasting. You're, you're the God who heals and, and fixes. I pray you would open their eyes, Lord, and they would see and, and believe and turn to Christ, turn to his way and, and be turned by you, Lord. And for us on the way, keep us free from the stain of the world. We must be in it, but not of it. And may we instead pursue you, Lord, and, and enjoy your ways. For your ways are blessed. Your ways are good. It's our delight to follow Christ because we've, we've, we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and how blessed are all who take refuge in him. We want that blessing, Lord. I pray we learn this evening, or rather this morning, to turn more and more to you and to find our, our place with Christ, to, to, to dwell with him, to meditate in his word, to, to feed off of his truth, to worship. And, and as we live with you, Lord, you will bless us. We will be blessed. 
And in return, Lord, we bless your name for this is all by your grace and for your glory. So we will say how blessed is your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.